Um, today the scripture reading is a selection from Romans 9, and um, th this is hard to understand scripture, and I've really had to humble myself and just remember um, I can trust the Father as I read these today. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, that's Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Vicky. So good morning. Uh, uh, Vicky, <laughs> Vicky was worried about reading uh, the text because it's hard to imagine having to say something about it for the next 35 to 40, you know, 40 minutes. Uh, um, so we do finally, as you see this morning, move into Romans uh, chapter 9. And this is hard stuff. Uh, I, I've been accused of avoiding it, and I guess uh, I've, been, I've avoided it as long as I can. We have to get into it now. It's interesting. If you look at um, Bible studies, books, even things like Lifeways produced for the Southern Baptist Convention um, and, you know, in other, in other places, there are a lot of people when they're dealing with Romans that just literally, I'm not, literally, they just kind of skip over all of this stuff. Uh, because it's just too hard and too controversial. That said, uh, when you're, you know, there are some sermons that uh, that probably should be a little longer than others uh, because of the subject matter and that sort of thing. So if there's a if there's an average, 
uh, of length of a sermon in this church. I just want to warn you today, maybe a little bit above average. But listen, you're here on, Memor- on a rainy Memorial Day weekend anyway, so we might as well give you as many Jesus points as we possibly can. So a long sermon means more Jesus points for those of you who came out. Anyway, but here's my, here's my guarantee, here's my promise, that if you come back next week, I'll make, up, I'll make it up to you next week. How about that? So if we average these next two, it'll be about the same, but today's going to have to be a little bit longer because we have to, it just, we just got to take our time in dealing with these things, okay? And so let's look at Romans chapter 9. Actually, this is a, it's a wonderful passage of scripture, uh, but it can be very confusing. It can, be, it can, it can uh, create a lot of questions, and really probably if I do my job today, it's going to leave you with more questions than answers, and so I'd love to dialogue. Just know that everything that I say is open to your um, study and reflection and interaction with me. That's what I'm here for. That is not a uh, that is not a um, an impingement on my time. It actually is the work that I'm supposed to do. So so come to me with whatever questions are prompted by these things. Okay. Now here's what we want to do as we move into this section. We're going to spend the next four weeks until about the middle of June here. Uh, I want you to see context is really important. Okay. And and you're going to see that in the way that I frame the way we go after these verses this morning. Uh, And I want to say it this way, that if the gospel is good news, if it's the good news that you are on God's heart, and the whole of God's life, all of his planning and energy and focus is directed towards your good. Let me say that again. So if the gospel is the good news that you are on God's heart, and therefore all of the focus and energy and planning of his life is directed towards your good, which is all that Romans 8 has been telling us about, then the result of the gospel is to give you a heart for others like God's heart for you. Okay, And you see this in Paul in these first verses. We have to take the context of this entire section in these first three verses here. So look there again in verse 1 and 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So what you see there is Paul is burdened for his people, the Israelites. He feels the weight of their souls on his heart. He wants them to know the gospel too. And so God's great heart for Paul has given him a great heart for others. And he's anguished, we're told here, to see them come to faith and grow in their knowledge and love for God. Now, I want to start there, okay? I want to start all of our reflections on these these passages right there because that is ground zero for the church. Uh, The church exists in the world to be the visible expression of God's heart for the world, and that's what you see here with Paul. So my question, and what you've got to reflect upon this morning as we go throughout these, these verses is, who is on your heart like the Israelites are on Paul's heart? Who are you in great sorrow and anguish over as he is for his kinsmen? That's, that's, the, that's the first thing. Because having people on your heart like this uh, can test your confidence in the theology of Romans 8. Remember, Romans 8 is all about the certainty of God's love and purposes for us. He says there, all of those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And those he predestined, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And nothing can uh, separate us from the love of God that is us, ours in Christ Jesus. And nothing can condemn us and all of these sorts of things. That's Romans 8. What happened to Paul is, is it created a, created a crisis of faith for him because he... As he started to write these things out and meditate on these things, his heart immediately began to turn to his people. And he said, but what about about Israel? If all that in Romans 8 is true, if God's purpose for, for us cannot be thwarted, 
If God's love is going to see us all the way through to the end, then why, why did Israel not believe? What happened to the people that God had been cultivating for all of these you know, centuries in times past? That's the question that Paul's wrestling with that, that leads to these three verses. And, I, and I, I'll just be honest with you. The person in my life who is most like Paul here is my wife. Um, and I don't think she'd mind me saying this, but the thing that makes Ashley doubt the love of God the most uh, in her own life is that there are people that she loves that don't believe. And it's a crisis of faith for her. And, and I marvel at that. I, it's one of the things I love about her uh, because it really should be for all of us that we should be so wrapped up in wanting to see the people we love come to faith that when they don't, that there, it creates this yearning, anguished, crying out to God. Maybe even a crisis of faith. And so you're faced with a choice in moments like this, when you find yourself in those places, when it seems like God has promised something and it isn't happening. So if you want to put applications on that, so like when your kids who've been baptized walk away from the faith or when it appears that, um, that God is not working in the lives of those that you love to bring him to himself or when for all practical purposes it does not look like all things are working together for your good. Whatever it might be, when you find yourself in the grips of that kind of struggle, the struggle often gets framed like this. Either God is not all-powerful or he is not good. It has to be one or the other. If he's not all-powerful, then it's true. He may wait, might, he might want something to happen, but you know the, the reality is he lacks the ability to carry it out. If he's all-powerful and it doesn't happen, then, I mean, the only thing you're left to, to conclude is, well, then it must be because he's not good. He can do it, and he just doesn't want to do it, and that's why it didn't, it didn't happen. And this is how this gets framed. You have to choose. Either God is not in control of all things, and there's stuff that happens that's outside of his control, or, you know, and, and if that's true, then his promises are in jeopardy, or he is not good, uh, we, we shouldn't trust his heart. He really is, um, he's not for us, he's against us. And so it's either a failure of God's power or a failure of God's heart. In most of the tragedies in our lives, most when we have to, you know, when we, when we lose people we love or when things are just spiraling out of control or when we are, are facing the unbelief of people that we care about, in most of those things, it really is that we feel like we have to make a choice between these two things. And there are all kinds of theologies out there that, that try to make sense of this, but most of them make, make the mistake of thinking that the only way to solve this crisis is to, um, is to argue for one and against the other. And you have it on both sides. And I'm not going to go, I don't, I don't want to take the time to go into all the specifics of that, but you have it on both sides. Either, either you know, you make much of God's control, uh, but you diminish his heart, or you make much of, um, you, you diminish his control for the sake of, of showing that he's good, and it must be that he just, there are things he wants to happen that just he can't make happen uh, somehow. And Paul refuses to do that. That's what I want you to see. He says Israel's unbelief, number one, it wasn't due to a failure of God's power, and number two, it wasn't due to a failure of God's heart. But where does that leave us? Where does that leave us if we allow ourselves to live in the tension of that with him? And that's what I want you to see uh, from this text. Okay, only two things this morning. And I told you it's going to be a longer sermon, even though there are only two points instead of three. So hang in there. And here's really the thing. If you're going to have people on your heart uh, like Paul, if you're going to really allow yourself to, to embrace the anguish of people's souls the way Paul did for Israel, then there are really two things that you have to do. First, there is a doctrine that you have to hold on to no matter what. 
And Paul goes into that. And then secondly in this passage, not only there's a doctrine you have to hold on to no matter what, there's a demand you have to let go of no matter what. So the doctrine you hold on to and the demand you let go of, those are the two things that I want you to see. And they're really framed around Paul's whole framing of this text by the objections that he, all of Romans really is a series of of objections that Paul is is um, assuming and then he provides the answer to the questions that he knows are going to come. And you'll see how there's an objection made in verse 6 and then again uh, down in verse 14. And that really is the, the way that the passage is laid out. So let's start with this. The doctrine you have to hold on to. Let's begin there. And the doctrine that you hold on to is the sovereignty of God. It's the freedom of God and salvation and everything else. That God can do whatever he wants to do and that all things come to pass because of his will. That's what our confession teaches. And this is really aimed at this objection beginning in verse 6 there. If you, if you notice, he's, he's speaking about the anguish that he feels about his people. And then in verse 6, he, he, he anticipates this, this objection. Well, does that mean, if Israel has not come to faith, does that mean the word of God has failed? I mean, here are the Israelites. They're God's chosen people. I mean, Deuteronomy 9, 6. They have a special place in God's plans for the world. They have all of these advantages, and we didn't read that part. But verses 4 through 6 are all of the things they have going for them. And yet... Uh, What's happening here is the population of the church in Rome at the time of Paul writing this letter is overwhelmingly Gentile, not Jewish. And so there's this question, does that mean that God didn't come through like he promised? Was Israel's unbelief due to a failure of God's power? Did did the things that God say was going to happen, was he not able to bring them to pass? And Paul's answer is very clear, isn't it? He says, absolutely not. Israel's failure was not due, or excuse me, Israel's unbelief was not due to a failure of God's power. It's just the opposite, actually. He's going to make the argument. It actually establishes God's sovereignty. That's the argument here. Uh, look, at, look at the phrase that he goes on from verse 5, verse 6, with the objection to the very next sentence. He says, For not all of those descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham. That's the key. And we're going to come back to this in the coming weeks because. Those two sentences right there really are the summary of this entire argument in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But what does it mean? It means that salvation is supernatural. That every person who is saved is a miracle. That salvation doesn't come through physical descent or natural processes. Israel is not just an ethnic people living in a certain geography. The true children of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham, not just his physical descendants. So in chapter 2, 28 and 29, you remember, Paul said that physical circumcision wasn't really enough. It wasn't the deal. It was the circumcision of the heart. Uh, And of course, the point there is that only God can reach in and cut away the idols and the entanglements of the heart. And so God's word has not failed because the church is populated by Gentiles, not Jews. In fact, what we learn is that was the point all along, that God's purposes and his promises, all of that stuff in Romans 8, 28 through 39 only apply to those with true faith, not those just externally connected to the church. The true Israel is being defined here, and that, and that is part of the point. And the doctrine really is this. What Paul is really trying to, to go after with us is that, that salvation really is by grace. What a great, I, I know we didn't know it, but what a great song, that song we sang, you know, by Gra- or grace alone, I think it's called, a little while ago, that everything is grace, beginning to end grace. I mean, who acts in salvation? It is God's initiative and action that saves, right? Or is it your initiative and action that saves? That's the question. Which is it? you got to make a decision there. There really is no middle ground. 
There's no fuzzy middle there. It's either God's initiative and action that saves or your initiative and action that saves. And that's what's at stake. Is salvation a gift or is it a wage? And by now in Romans, we should know the answer to that question. What Paul says here in verse 8, look there. It is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, it's only those of supernatural origin. That's what Paul's teaching. Abraham's strength, if you remember that story, produced Ishmael. God's power alone produced Isaac. Sarah's womb was barren and dead, and she was as old as dirt. And God, out of that, by his power, brought Isaac. So Ishmael was the product of a natural process. Isaac was a miracle, and that's the way it works. You cannot save yourself. God must save you. It is a gift. The only thing you have to do is to come to him with open hands. And everybody, what happens is we come to this passage, everybody reads this, and they get tripped up by the talk of election, and they miss the point. Uh, What matters is not the doctrine of election. Don't get sidetracked by that, okay? What matters is, is salvation by grace or works? That's the thing. Are you saved because of something you do and then you give it to God or because of something God does and then gives to you as a gift? But, but here, see, we are so prone to answer grace, but then default to works, uh, right? So it, whether it's being raised in a Christian home or being part of a church or being a good moral person, we're prone to, to this. And so what Paul does is Paul brings in the idea of election because what election does is election ensures grace. I don't want to dance around this, okay? I'm going to go straight after this. Because the word is right here, verse 11, the word election is there. In Ephesians 1, Paul says we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. So election means that everything, and especially salvation, originates in God's choice. If you go all the way to chapter 11, verse 36, from him are all things, Paul says. From him are all things. Paul says... uh, you know, that, that, that that's true, that that is the doctrine you hold on to, that without it, everything crumbles. From God are all things. And then what Paul does is he goes to give some illustrations of this from, because he's dealing with the Jews from, from the, the story of the nation of Israel. And the first is, if you look there in verses 7 and 8, it's the argument of Isaac, not Ishmael. And the lesson here is what we've already said, that if salvation were a matter of physical descent, then Ishmael would be included, but he is not It says, verse 7, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why? Because Ishmael began with Abraham. With Abraham's plan, Abraham's strength, Isaac began with God. With God's plan, God's power. God's working. And that's the way salvation works. But then there's a second illustration. Just in case the first one isn't clear enough, beginning in verse 10 through 13, you see it's Jacob, not Esau. And here you have twin brothers. They come from the same mother, Uh, which makes it even more uh, the case that Paul's trying to make here. And God chooses one and not the other. He says, verse 13, very clearly, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That's a quote from one of the prophets. Uh, And so what was the basis of this choice that God made? And again, you know, it's very clear here what Paul is saying. He says, verse 11, look there, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So the question is, Is there some meritorious act that one of them performed that was the cause of God's decision of the one over the other? Did God choose Jacob because he was good and Esau was bad? 
Did God choose Jacob because he knew that Jacob would follow him and Esau wouldn't? And, and Paul's answer is no. The choice was made, he's very clear to say, before they were born. In other words, before they had done anything good or bad to influence God's decision. That's what that word election means. There is no cause outside of God's own good pleasure for his choice of Jacob over Esau. If you're looking for a reason why God has chosen to do things the way he does, the only one he gives you in verse 15 is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that is designed to shut our mouths. It begins and ends with me, he says. And Paul seems to think this really matters. I mean, he notices this theme in Genesis and really the whole Old Testament where God chooses the younger son ahead of the older. I mean, do you, have, you ever, have you ever really, like, have you read and figured out, okay, something's going on here because this seems to happen again and again and again. And he says that it happens this way, verse 11, in order that God's purpose in election might continue. So election is important. There's a purpose in it. Paul's telling us. It carries an important spiritual lesson. And so God worked again and again in such a way throughout the Old Testament and continues to do so today. He worked in a way to establish the idea of his sovereignty and salvation because the lesson that we see in verse 11 is so important that it is not because of works, but because of him who calls. I mean, that is the bedrock truth of salvation in Christianity. You hear me? It is not because of works, but because of him who calls. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Ephesians 2, which we read Friday, we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Paul says. Salvation is God's doing. It's a gift to us, and you have to be careful. See, this is where I, I have to like press this home. You have to be careful that you don't allow works to come back in. If you say, you know, okay, I believe, I, I'm with you, I believe God does 99%, but then there's this tiny little 1% that you have to do. That 1% is the difference between heaven and hell. It's all or nothing. It's all of God or nothing at all. And that's why I'm fighting for this, that's why Paul's fighting for this, I think. Okay, but, okay, time out for a minute, right? <laughs> You're anticipating, I love that, that's great. Oh, I mean, the relief in that just little, oh, okay. Well, what, okay, so what then is the relationship between God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility, okay? I mean, what about the passages like John 3, for example, that call all people to believe and to be saved, or First Peter uh, where it says that it is the will of God that none should perish. I mean, even our confession, if you look at that, I mean, do you, do you notice the way the confession puts it, okay? If you, if you would just indulge me and look back at what we read a minute ago, it says very clearly the first sentence, God from all eternity did freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. But then you have to go to the second sentence, yet he ordered all things in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor does he force his creatures to act against their wills. What? And so I want you to see, I want you to see, we got we to bring these things together, okay? What about these passages? What about, what about 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 3? What about John 3, 16? Well, if you go on in Romans 9, and you go down to verses 30 through 33, which we didn't read because just for the sake of time, 
Paul goes on to say, after he's established God's sovereignty, he goes on to say that Israel failed to believe because of their stubborn refusal to accept grace. We're going to look at that next week. So we're left to ask, is it God's choice or is it our response? Which is it? And the answer the Bible gives is yes. <laughs> Both. God works through our choices, not around or in spite of them. We don't believe in fate. We believe in, a person, in personal sovereignty. We believe that our choices... Uh, have consequences, and we are never forced by God to do anything other than what we want. This text is not denying that. The teaching of the Bible is that God is responsible for salvation, and we are free to choose what we want. But on our own, we won't choose him. We won't want to choose him, and that's the problem. So God must break in. He goes first. He must come in and change us at the fundamental level of our heart's desires so that we would embrace him. So only God is responsible for salvation, but only we are responsible for our condemnation. And that really is the teaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, if anyone is saved, it is entirely because of the mercy and choice of God. But I add this, if people are lost, it's entirely their own responsibility. John Stott said the same thing, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. If anybody is saved, the credit is God's. And this paradox contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve. Now, Notice the way the confession says it. How do those two things mingle then? How is it that we, that we can confess as a church? For 500 years we've been confessing that God from all eternity did freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet in such a way that he does not force his creatures to act against their will. How do those two things mingle? I got the best answer. Are you ready? I have no idea. <laughs> and neither do you, by the way. Take it up with him when you see him, I guess. But I know this. If you try to explain either away, you get into trouble. Ross Duthot, who writes for the New York Times, wrote a great book a few years ago. It's, it's, the title was Bad Religion. And in the prologue, he makes just an astute observation, I thought. Listen to his words. He says, I mean, this is just, this is just so marvelous. Uh, and it's going to be really hard for a lot of us. But he says, what distinguishes orthodoxy from heresy? is a commitment to mystery and paradox. Mystery abides at the heart of every religious faith, but the Christian tradition is uniquely comfortable preaching dogmas that can seem like riddles, offering answers that swiftly lead to further questions and confronting believers with the possibility that the truth about God passes our understanding. All ancient and modern heresies, in contrast, he says, have in common a desire to resolve Christianity's contradictions, to untie its naughty paradoxes, and to produce a cleaner and more coherent faith. That is really good. And that's a guy that's not an evangelical Christian. He's Roman Catholic. But he's right here. I mean, Christianity is, is both and. Way more than it's either or. It really is. I mean, if you don't believe me, think about some of the cardinal, foundational doctrines of our faith. God is both, three, and... One, Jesus is both man and God. And listen, they would burn you at the stake in the third century if you, if you tried to resolve that. I mean, there were those that said, no, 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 he can't be both, so he must have been more man than God. Nope, we're lighting you on fire, right? Heretic. 
No, no, he's, he was floating through life as like a spirit vapor. He wasn't really a man. No, no, we're kicking you out of the church for that too. Christianity is both and way more than it is either or. So it is both sovereignty and human responsibility, but you got to hold on to this doctrine. See, you got, that's the first thing. You got to hold on to this doctrine. And then let me just give you three reasons before I move to the, to the other part. Uh, the, the three reasons I would tell you to hold on to this doctrine of election as Paul teaches it to us here. And the first is that it really does produce humility. And that's so absolutely important. At least it should. The irony is, is that when people, <laughs> if you want to see the work of, of the evil one, uh, when people start to get a, a, there seems to be a direct correlation between kind of this growing sense of getting this biblical doctrine right, this doctrine of election, and become just an arrogant jerk. So the more certain I become that God is completely responsible for my salvation, the more self-righteous I get. That makes no sense. You see how ridiculous that is? It really, it really should be humility. And it's what Paul said, isn't it? In, in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace, not the result of works. Do you remember what the next phrase is? So that no one can boast. And so if, if every salvation is a miracle, then there can be no boasting. You, you, if you're here this morning and you claim to be in Christ, uh, if it's God's doing, then you have nothing to take credit for. You can't look at somebody else and say, I'm better than you. If, if your kids are on your heart, parents, do you realize if your kids are on your heart, you need a miracle? It's not your parenting that causes faith in them. You can't make it happen. Do you know what else that means? You can't mess it up. And that's, see, that's the right place to be. That, that's a good place to know that. So there's humility. But the second reason I would tell you to hold on to this doctrine is that it really does produce wonder. And man, do we need wonder. I mean, that really is where our hearts should go, if you want to be honest. We should read Romans. I mean, Vicki, we should read Romans 9 and not shake in our in our, you know, we were talking about this up front. We should, shouldn't just shake in our boots. We should read Romans 9 and fall on our knees and say, oh, oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. I mean, Paul ends this section in worship for a reason, because this should be the cause of worship. And I would just say to you, um, it's not arguing about doctrine. We, we, we give into the scheme of the evil one if we argue about doctrine over this text instead of worshiping the one that's being spoken of here. Our Christianity is suffering from a wonder deficit because God is too small. He's too familiar. He's too predictable. Uh, some of the guys that were, were, were going through... Um, officer training and one of the guys we read um, uh, chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession and it messed with him and he came to me and said listen God feels like something different than I've ever known him to be before he's not my, my buddy he's something more than that yeah that's right that's right right I mean this Christianity thing where God is just really small and we're good people and we're smart enough to make right decisions for Jesus and we're moral, morally superior to the rest of the world there's no wonder in that there's no worship in that. There's no awe in that. And so there's no power. But then there's a third thing. The third reason I would tell you hold on to this doctrine is that this doctrine of election really does, um, it gives you great cause for, for hope, great hope. And let me talk to the non-Christian uh, for a minute. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you hear this and you wonder, but, you know, and this is what we, 
well, what if God's not chosen me? You know, this is scary stuff. And let me say that if you are that disrupted, if, you, if, if you're that worried about the doctrine of election, it's probably because you're elect. Isn't it comforting to know that it doesn't depend upon you? You can't mess it up. God's going to do what God's going to do. He's going to use you. He's going to work in the decisions you make, of course, but he's ultimately going to do. But if you're a Christian and there are people on your heart, listen, gosh, this is what I would say to those of you who struggle here. If you're a Christian and you have people on your heart, don't assume that the people on your heart aren't on God's heart. Why would you think more of your heart than you would think of his heart? If you have people on your heart, it's probably because they're on God's heart too. That's why they're on your heart. So doesn't that fill you with hope? Doesn't it fill you with hope? If someone is on your heart, it's a signal that God's already at work in their lives because you having them on your heart is part of the way that he is working. So some people say, well, why pray? Why do evangelism if all this stuff is true? I mean, my, my answer to that is why pray if it's not? That's the question, right? Why ask God to save someone you love if it is ultimately something that is outside of what he's able to do? I mean, there's more hope in this doctrine. Hold on to the doctrine. Okay, so that's the first thing. And I'm going to be much shorter from here, I promise. So we see the doctrine to hold on to. It really is glorious what Paul teaches here. And it really should just, we should just stand before it and, and shut our mouths. And, that, and that's the second thing. Not only is there this doctrine you have to hold on to, but Paul goes on to say the second thing, if you're going to have people in your heart, there's a demand you have to let go of. There's a demand you have to let go of, and that's the second half of the text. So you come down to verse 14, and Paul's been going through all of this, but then there's a second objection uh, that comes that he anticipates, and the objection is, well, if that's true, if everything you just said is true, then God is, then, then God is not just. It's not fair. God is wrong to do this. That's that verse 14 there. And really, there's, a, there's one in verse 14, and then again down in verse 19, and together... Uh, the two objections are claiming it, God is not in the right in, in relating to us this way. In other words, if Israel's unbelief is not due to a failure of God's power, then it must be due to a failure of God's heart. Because either he's not powerful enough or he isn't good enough. And if we've established that he's powerful enough, then it must be that he isn't good enough. And Paul's response to this objection is different. Whereas he gave an answer to the first question here... Here comes this objection, and notice what he does. He doesn't give an answer. Instead, what he does is he shows why you shouldn't even ask the question. He says, if you're struggling with the idea of election, that's one thing. But to say that God is unjust because he doesn't do what you think he should do, <laughs> that's just going a little too far. Right? Right? If you, if, if you say God is unjust because he doesn't do what you think he, he should do, what, if you think what he's doing is wrong, that's going too far. Paul says uh, in verse 20, it's answering back to God. Look there. And that word is a really important word. It's a word, the word for just reply, but it has a prefix. And the prefix is the prefix anti. And so it means to reply against God, to reply against, to, to argue to contradict God, to put up a challenge, to put yourself in his place, to say to him, listen, listen here, buddy. You have to answer to me on this. Your reasons for doing what you're doing have to pass muster with me. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He said, 
The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's in the witness stand. Uh, he is quite a kindly judge, man is. And if God should have a reasonable defense for the things he does that we disagree with, he's ready to listen to it. And the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And so this image of the potter and the clay that begins in verse 20 is really helpful. Has the potter no right over the clay, Paul asks. We read this in Jeremiah, didn't we, just a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 18, that the clay is worked and then reworked as it seemed good to the potter to do, God says there. And then the Lord says to the people, can I not do with you as this potter has done? And the metaphor is meant to convey the absolute freedom of the potter to do with the clay whatever he wants. And that feels wrong to us. That feels wrong to us. We, we, there's this something in us that just kind of kicks back against that, and we have to know where the objection comes from. The essence of sin, John Stott said, is man substituting himself for God. So what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, which is the chief end of everything, and which is also the chief end of God. Again, Romans 11, 36, from him and through him and therefore to him are all things, to him be glory forever. That's how this section ends. From him and through him and therefore to him are all things. All that God does is to show his glory. And in some cases, we're told, verses 20 through, 22 through 24, it's to show his wrath, to make his power known in, in order that others might, you know, know him in his greatness. And in other cases, it's to show his power and display the glory of his mercy. But either way, all the time, it's all about him. And we have to be honest and say we don't like that. We would rather be brought into the decision-making process. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, the original sin was grasping for wisdom, to be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, it was a demand to understand, to not have to, to submit to revelation, to not have to sit underneath these things and say, who are we, O Lord? You have every right to do whatever you see fit to do with the clay as the potter does. But here's the problem. We don't want God to be God because we don't want to be us a pinch off a little lump of clay. Is there injustice on God's part, verse 14? And it's a simple answer. And the answer is no. And unfortunately, it stops at that. Deuteronomy 32, the Lord is a rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. And that is not true only when I understand. It is also true when I don't understand. There is no further answer given, and we just have to be okay with that. We can't demand an explanation from God, not because there isn't one, hear me. Not because there isn't one, but because <laughs> let's not be arrogant enough to believe that we, are, that we are not too small and too limited to hope to understand the reasons why God does what he does. This section ends with the doxology, as I've said. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. So we have to let go of the demand to understand all that God does and submit to the revelation of his heart for you and for those you love. So you can't say if God does it this way, then all other times where he talks about his love, right, he's lying, he's not telling the truth, right? This, what Paul's saying here in this passage, this and John three sixteen can't both be true. Well, I would say, why not? Why not? God says they go together. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. 
There are times where it may look like this, right? But God has said this. And so no matter what this looks like right now, I'm going with what God says. That's, that's the essence of faith. So what is the revelation of God's heart in these verses? If we have to submit to the revelation of his heart, what is the revelation of his heart? I got I to gotta get finished here. I would take you back to the beginning of chapter 9 and verses 2 through 4. To the great sorrow and unceasing anguish in Paul's heart over Israel's unbelief. He is feeling all of that because he has God's heart. His heart, Paul's heart, is a reflection of God's heart. God's heart breaks over sin. His heart breaks over the unbelief of the world. Ezekiel 18.23 says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That it kills him. Quite literally. 2 Peter 3.9 says that if God got his wish, none would perish and all would come to repentance. Of course, John 3.16 says that God so loves the world that he gave his only son that, that the world might be saved and not condemned. Now, you say, wait a minute, what does that have to do with all the stuff you've been saying? And I would just say to you, have you ever in your small little world had to make choices with conflicting desires? Can you imagine how complex God's emotional life must be? Submit yourself to what's being said here. And here's what's being said. Paul is in such anguish over the Jews. Look there in verse 3. He says, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. In other words, Paul said, if I had to go to hell in order for them to go to heaven, I'd do it. If, if the punishment for their sins could fall upon me instead, I'd take it. And if you know the Bible, he's channeling Moses here. Do you remember the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32? Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord and the people uh, go astray and they fashion a golden calf and they started worshiping it. And the Lord comes and he threatens to destroy them and start her with, with Moses. And what does Moses say? Do you remember? He says, uh, this is Ezekiel, I mean, excuse me, Exodus 32, 32. He says, oh Lord, forgive them. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Think about it. Let your judgment fall upon me instead of on them. Let me take them place. Blot, blot me out, not them. Now, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? That's God's heart. What you see in Paul there, what you see in Moses there is God's heart. Now, how do I know it's God's heart? I know because in Jesus Christ, God himself came into the world to do what Moses and Paul asked. God was so anguished over our lostness and sin that he said, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off. And in Galatians 3, Paul writes that Jesus took our curse by becoming a curse for us on the cross. He was cut off for our sake. He went to hell so that you and I can go to heaven if we believe in him. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's his heart for the world. Israel's unbelief wasn't due to a failure of God's heart. No way. In fact, as you keep going in Romans 9 through 11, you see God's not done with Israel yet. He's going to eventually work to overcome their unbelief. That's what Paul's ultimately going to say. But do you see God's great heart? Because when you see his heart for the world, and especially for you, then what's going to happen is it'll begin to give you a heart like Paul's, that you would begin to anguish over and long and pray for people and their salvation and be motivated to share the good news of God's great heart with them. Eight out of ten people in Polk County are unbelieving. Eight out of every ten that you meet or do business with. Eight out of 
10 of the families in your classroom at school, eight out of 10 houses on your block. Who has God put on your heart? Who are you anguishing over? Don't worry, if you don't have an answer, then that's where your repentance starts this morning, right there. But look at him. Do you see his great heart for you? Do you see the great heart of God for you? If you do, it'll give you a great heart for others. And that's what we need to pray, that he would work that into us. And so let's pray. And thanks for being patient with me as I get got through all of that. So Father, come now as we sing in these last moments together, as we wrap this service up. Uh, we would say to you where we are, we are, where we are lacking the kind of anguish and empathy and um, passion that Paul has here for uh, his people, would you come and meet us in that place of barrenness? That's a, that's a spiritually barren place. We are not meant to live like that. We're meant to live uh, with, the, with the weight of souls upon our hearts. Uh, it's, it's an act of treason and disobedience for us to look around at eight of ten houses on our block and not be passionately concerned for the souls that occupy those homes. That we could just be so busy going about our lives and not live as we're meant to uh, as the reflection of your great heart for the world in the world. Forgive us, we pray. And where we're still, uh, whether we're uh, a Christian or not a Christian, where we're still lacking in faith, would you come and, and woo us to yourself in these moments? Come and loosen our tongues that we might sing these songs of praise and repentance and thanksgiving, uh, that we might respond to all that you've said to us here in this text this morning. Uh, and we pray all of these things, as always, so that you might get the glory, because we know that's your great end, and it's ours too. And so we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, and so this uh, benediction is, this is ascending. God, the Lord, every week, uh, as he gathers us as his people and brings his word to us, he is sending us out. Uh, and so he's sending us out to be mindful as we journey towards what we just sang. I could feel how hard, you know. I think our hearts just kind of want to sit, right? I mean, because these are heavy things we've been talking about this morning. But as we journey towards the joy that is promised in that text, we're told to not be selfish, uh, right? We're not, not to be selfish with possession of it. But we spend this life trying to take as many people with us as we can. And so as he sends us to, I mean, I'm not making those numbers up, to the 8 out of 10 families in your neighborhood, to the 8 out of 10 people that you work with, to the 8 out of 10 people on the baseball team that your kid plays on, or whatever the case might be, uh, to the 80% of people in our city uh, that don't know him, as we are being sent now to them uh, to have a heart for them like God's heart for us, like Paul's heart for his people. Uh, he promises to go with us. So if, if that is the work you need God to do, it's the work I need God to do, pray that, that, that Ashley's heart would inv inv invade our family's heart for the people that we live around. Pray that God would do that in your heart too. Uh, but as you do, if you need courage, Here's the courage. Here's what he promises to go with you and to bless you and to do everything he can uh, to make you fruitful in what he's called and sent you to do. So the, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Happy Memorial Day. Uh, thank you to those who sacrificed their lives uh, for us. Go in peace.